1: Equity lines. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is easy. Equity
2: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren.
3: How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. Here in Australia, people often say they know summer's coming when Melbourne Cup comes around. Yes. Well, I know summer's coming when a different event comes around and that's the Hearts and Mind Conference That's every November. It. It's the investing conference that stops a nation. <laughs>
2: it does stop the nation and we're lucky enough to be able to partner with Sown Hearts and Minds to get access to some of the brilliant investors that will be presenting on the day. And this year is no different. It is our pleasure to welcome Tim Carlton to the studio. Tim, welcome. Thanks, Bryce. So, Tim is the founder of OzCap Asset Management, which he's been running since 2012. Prior to OzCap, Tim worked at Macquarie Bank and Goldman Sachs. He's also previously pitched stocks at two Hearts and Minds conferences, pitching Macquarie Group, Ripper of a Stock back in 2017, and JB Hi-Fi in 2018. And he's back again in 2022 with another stock pitch. So we're really excited to uh, to have Tim in the studio today. But Ren,
3: for those that haven't heard of Soane, uh, what is it? So Soane Hearts and Minds Investment Leaders Conference is Australia's leading finance conference dedicated to supporting Australian medical research. Mm. And we've been supporting the conference for the past three years. And we're doing it again this year, hosting a series of interviews from some of the investors who will be pitching at the conference, mm. Tim being one of them. That's it. And when we say pitching, 12 investors over the course of one day pitching their best idea.
2: That's it. It's an exciting conference this year. It's uh, back in in real life, it's been online for the past two. This year, down in Hobart, Tasmania, and not only is it in an amazing venue, but Sone is dedicated to raising money for Australian medical research. This year's major beneficiary is the Menzies Institute for Medical Research at UTAS, with all of the uh, proceeds from tickets going towards medical research. So, some amazing names have been in the past. We have Bill Browder as the headline this year, with more speakers to be to be announced. It is on Friday. The eighteenth of November down in Hobart. Now, Ren, the best part is: firstly, tickets are three thousand five hundred dollars. Is that the best That's part? That's the best part. All, <laughs> all going to medical research, as we said. Now, tax yes, it deductible. It, it don't know. I'm not a tax Probably. accountant. Probably <laughs> check <Jack?
3: laughs> potentially.
2: Um, but Sone have been uh, hearts and minds have been incredibly generous and given the Equity Mates team two to give away to the Equity Mates community. So to do so, uh, to be in the running to win a ticket worth $3,500 and see these expert investors in real life, travel and accommodation not included, head to community.equitymates.com, sign up to our forum and comment on this episode which stock you would pitch if you were at the conference.
3: Is this just our way of getting some stock tips? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can't make it to Hobart, just jump on the forum anyway and see what other people are pitching. (laughs) (laughs) That's it.
2: That's it. So look, $3,500 in value. Tickets um, are limited. It's an awesome opportunity to, um, to hear from some of the best investors from around Australia and the globe community.equitymates.com, sign up to the forum, comment on this episode. But enough with the pre Yeah, Tim,
3: you've been sitting there very (laughs) patiently. We appreciate that. Um, Now we turn the spotlight on you. Um, And we'd love to start these interviews by hearing the story of people's first investments. So... Uh, Can you kick us off that?
1: Yeah, sure. I have no doubt that my answer is going to disappoint a little bit because I, I cannot remember my first investment. (laughs) But I'm very confident that I lost money, and so I'll I'll set the scene for you. It was the late 1990s, and I think, like a lot of um, my colleagues at university, we had our trusty Comsec account, and uh, we're in the late stages of the dot com boom. Uh, I think. Names like Sausage Software and (laughs) OneTel and LookSmart, which made you do anything but, um, were all the flavour of the day. And all I remember is losing money in the equity market. And that's because uh, my university started in 1999. So I was there for more of the crash than the boom. And uh, it was a very, very useful experience because I realised how easy it was to lose money in the stock market if you didn't know what you were doing. And I also realised that there were two sorts of participants in the stock market. There were investors, which you want to be, mm-hmm. and then there were speculators looking to get rich quick, and invariably it ends up being quite a costly experience. And you know, these days, I, um, I guess lecture at Sydney University actually uh, in a portfolio management course, and one of the things I tell the students is speculate early. So nice. Speculate <laughs> in your 20s. I mean, anyone that gets involved in the stock market at some point is going to engage in a serious form of speculation mm-hmm. and will invariably lose money doing so. And it's far better to do that when you're risking 1000 or 3000 or $5,000 than at a later stage in life when you have more accumulated wealth mm-hmm. and you feel like your bet size should be substantially bigger. So I tell them to get involved in the equity market early and to the extent that you need to speculate, and we probably all do, get that out <laughs> of your system when even though it feels like an expensive exercise to lose one or $2,000 early on, that's the best form of education that you're actually going to get for the rest of your life. And if I think back to my two formative experiences, I'm a anyone that knows me will tell you I'm a reasonably sceptical person in relation to um, investing in the stock market. And I think part of that comes from the fact that my first experience when I was a complete novice was in the dot-com period, where shortly after I started investing, everything crashed, right? So that makes you a little bit wary. Mm-hmm. And then my second real experience was when I moved from Macquarie to Goldman's in an equity, um, equity trading role. And shortly after I joined, we had the GFC. So you tend to be a, a little bit um, jarred by those experiences because they're formative in how you think about the equity market. And in many ways, I think both of those experiences were actually quite useful in creating a level of scepticism that has been very, very useful to me since. So, um, and unfortunately, I can't, probably fortunately, I can't remember um, what I uh, what I did invest in uh, at, the, at the outset, but the losing money part was very, very important for making sure that I didn't want to do that on a go forward basis. Mm. Yeah. Nice. So, um,
2: before founding Ozcap, you mentioned you worked at, at Macquarie and, and Goldman. What were some of the sort of key learnings that you formed during that period of time? And was, did it sort of change any preconceived notions that you had about finance and investing, you know, before, before starting in those roles?
1: I mean, at Macquarie, I was quite lucky. I I joined in the investment banking team and then within a pretty short period of time ended up on some principal transactions. So that was Macquarie was putting its own money to work. And uh, I was uh, in a team that was working on some reasonably complex transactions and I had some great mentors and one of them uh, had this skill for developing a back of the envelope valuation. And the reason I called it such or the reason it was known as such is he would literally have envelopes on which he'd scribble a few things. And (laughs) I'd I'd often spend weeks, if not longer, building these massive Excel models. You know, this this was my formative training in Excel and valuation and how the market works and how investment banking works. And so I'd be building these ginormous models. (laughs) And after weeks of toiling away with a thousand different inputs, we'd go to present these models to, um, to the directors at the time. And one of the directors would get to the opening page where there was an output, which was the valuation from, you know, your 20 tabs of work, <laughs> right? And he'd sit there and go, oh, I, that doesn't look right. And you're like, I haven't even got to the second tab. <laughs> 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 what do you mean it doesn't look right? And he'd have scribbled down before that meeting two or three shorthand ways of thinking about how he would value the business, and, and one of them might be, you know, a price to earnings multiple, but a lot of the others were more complex. He might use auction theory to try and value this particular part of the business, or he'll use some other theory to value a different part of the business. And he'd come up with two or three back of the envelope valuations. And if they triangulated within 5%, then he knew his answer was approximately right. And so if my answer wasn't similar to that, right, with my complicated Excel model, He'd say, well, that can't be right because if I look at it this way, I get this answer. If I look at it that way, I get another answer. And so your answer is just too far away. And invariably the, the meeting would become a discussion of can we find the error, right? <laughs> and every single time he was right. So it became a very useful way of learning that you needed to think about evaluation lots of different ways um, as a cross-check for the work that you're doing. Because sometimes when you are, a lot of people base their valuations on work that they do in Excel, but you need a cross-check to make sure that you haven't made some fundamental error. Probably the second experience that I learnt from Macquarie was that everyone was terrified of, pre- of presenting any principal <laughs> investment idea to the powers that be. And so they made sure that they stress-tested their analysis because when they were presented higher up the chain, and at the time you're talking about um, people like Alan Moss, who was the CEO at the time, Nicholas Moore was head of investment banking, Michael Carapiat was senior in investment banking, and you'd go into these meetings and within 10 minutes that have identified the key risks uh, and also the key flaws in your analysis. So you wanted to make sure that you'd stress tested everything and you were right on the key risks before um, you went into those meetings. And the meetings were all about risk management. They wanted to make sure that they did not lose money. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about making money. If they worried about not losing money, then the rest would take care of itself. Um, and so they were they were probably the two takeaways from Macquarie. Macquarie is a very special institution. It trains an enormous number of yeah. um, you know finance professionals in the domestic market and... Um, you know, I considered that was a very fortunate first experience. I then moved to an entirely different role. And really the first role I had with investing in equity markets. So I moved to Goldman Sachs. Um, It was early 2007. Um, I'd been interviewing in late 2006. And the head of equities and FIC at the time was a guy called Simon Rothery, who is now um, the CEO of Goldman's. And he was responsible for a proprietary strategies team. So that was the team that was responsible for investing Goldman's own balance sheet into domestic equities and other asset classes within the domestic market. And the equities team owned, I think it was about five micro cap, small cap exposures that he felt deserved a bit more rigor in the financial analysis so he um, he'd interviewed me and said I really want you to come in and look at these five companies and and tell me what you think they're worth and the quid pro quo was listen you know you prove yourself over time and you'll get to manage your own portfolio within the equities team and so I came on board and started on the first microcab exposure and Goldman's was substantial in it and um, it was a small telco and as I was looking at this business, and I was looking at their relatively low um, gross profit, and looking at their very high cost of doing business, and I, I very quickly came to the conclusion that I can't see how this business is ever going to be profitable. And so I came back with the conclusion that I thought the equity was worth zero and we should exit. Well... I don't think that was the answer that they were expecting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we ran through the analysis and we couldn't really find any flaw in the analysis, so we exited the position. So then I get to the second stock and it's a small financial services stock and I'll leave the names out of this, but very quickly I realised it was a fraud. Oh. That there were accounting shenanigans going on. And, you know, I met with management multiple times and they were evasive about responses and I just couldn't make any sense of the account. So I came to the conclusion that, again, I thought the equity values were zero, presented that. And again, there was sort of a few looks and we exited the position. You know, after five of these, and I'd concluded that all five <laughs> were zero, <laughs> I think mean, the question started to be raised, you know, are you going to find any value in any of these <laughs> equity positions that we, we need to analyse? Um, but within six to 12 months, all all five had gone to zero. Wow. Oh, they, they'd all gone out backwards. Wow. Um, so, uh, so you know, pretty shortly after, I was running my own um, uh, portfolio and – And I was up and away. And at the time, I didn't have an investment philosophy. I mean, until you start investing uh, professionally in the market or you've been investing in your own right for a substantial period of time, I think you're searching around for an investment uh, uh, philosophy. And I was lucky in that I was in a team full of very, very good investors. And they had very different trading styles. There were some that were very fundamentally driven, which was sort of similar to my own natural instinct as to the way I wanted to invest. There were others that were... That were pure traders, and they'd just be looking for short-term mispricing that they'd take advantage of. So there was a range of um, different skills and expertise, and I was able to sit there as the youngest member by far and just sponge off all of these incredible investors. These were the these were people proven to generate profits year after year for um, for Goldman's, and I really had free reign to do whatever I liked. I could look at anything I wanted, invest in anything I wanted travel, meet companies. And because I had a business card that said Goldman's on it, invariably almost no door was closed. So I'd spend a lot of time traveling with one or two of the other guys that were fundamentally based, meeting with CEOs, CFOs, or other senior people with all these listed businesses. I mean, we'd go on trips um, to WA and visit 10, 20, 30 companies in a week. right? And it was was a pretty incredible experience. So to be honest, I just tried to um, soak as much of it up as possible, and it was probably when I started to really think about, you know, an investment philosophy. And it was probably the point in time when I started to take um, uh, my uh, investment learning seriously. I mean, I think a lot of people have this expectation that you do your learning in university, and then after that, you should, you know, you should really be practicing. Mm. But in investing, I think you learn. The whole way through your lifetime. You're on a constant process. So at the time, I was pretty young. I had no kids. I had no real other responsibilities. I had all this freedom in my role. And so I just tried to read everything that I could. Every finance book I could get a hold of, um, I would read. I'd take five on trips... Whether, even if they're, they're work-related or holiday-related, my wife often jokes um, that uh, my repertoire of, of reading was, was, was very, very narrow in that <laughs> I, we'd go on holidays and I'd take five finance books and be incredibly excited that I got an opportunity to read these things, um, which she thought was somewhat humorous. But it was, you know, investing is my passion and that became very obvious to me through that period and out of that really my investment philosophy developed. Well, let's
3: get to that because uh, we love to unpack people's investing philosophies. And after Macquarie and Goldman, you went out on your own uh, with OzCap. So uh, let's start with the philosophy and then the journey from there. Sure. What, what was What is your philosophy? What was your philosophy? And are those two answers different?
1: Yeah. It hasn't changed over OzCap's existence. So by the end of the time at Goldman's, I had a very, very clear view on the philosophy. And so we're value investors with a quality bias. I think you refine your process over time. And so over the journey of Auscap, I, um I think our focus on quality has increased and our focus on value has decreased. And I think a lot of value managers find that. You want to more and more buy great businesses and you're happy to pay a fair price. I mean, it's terrific if you can find them at you know, attractive price. But it's the old Buffett adage from I think his 1989 um, investor letter that it's better to buy a wonderful business at a fair price than um, a a fair business at a wonderful price. And you learn that through painful experience. Uh, If you're trying to buy something for 80 cents in the dollar, if that investment goes up to a dollar within a year, that's a great 25% return. If it takes three years, then suddenly your annualised return is less than 8%. And in that time period, a whole lot of things that can happen to fair businesses that um, are are potentially negative to their outlook, which all of a sudden erodes your margin of safety. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you own a great business that's constantly reinvesting uh, and therefore growing its earnings over time at very attractive rates of return, then even if you slightly overpay in the short term, the company will grow into that valuation pretty quickly. Uh, And so... um, you know, we look to buy what we think are best of breed businesses at um, prices that are fair to attractive. And so I guess the obvious question is, well, what makes a great business? And that's really a distinguishing feature for better managers. And from our perspective, it comes down to a business that's able to generate a better return for each dollar invested than its peers, right? Because that tells you that it has some sort of competitive advantage, and from that point, you can go and work out, well, is, is it a sustainable competitive advantage? What is the competitive advantage? And if you work out that it's sustainable um, and growing, right? then the returns on capital are likely to improve over time, not get worse. So you see that in the accounts of the businesses because businesses that have a sustainable competitive advantage consistently have a higher return on equity than a lot of their peers. It's telling you this business has some sort of advantage over its peers. Now, in the case of BHP, it's obvious. It's got better deposits that are closer to transport, that are easier to mine, that are higher grade. That's a really easy one to identify. Um, a business like Nick Scarly, it's far more difficult to automatically work out what the competitive advantage is and why its return on capital is so much better than its peers. So, you need to, in many cases, unpick what competitive advantage is so that you can work out whether it's sustainable, whether that moat that they have is growing or shrinking, Mm -hmm. and what that means for the future revenue and earnings growth of the business. That's what we spend a lot of time doing. And we think we've identified what are the really great businesses in the domestic market. And then it's just a case of having the patience to wait for prices that you consider fair, which will still make it a very good investment, or occasionally you get these opportunities to buy into these great businesses at attractive prices. And that's that's when you get really great um, investment opportunities. And it's typically because the company is either experiencing a temporary hiccup or more often than that, the whole market is experiencing a downdraft because of some macroeconomic concern that's giving you an opportunity to buy into individual businesses at what are very attractive prices. And in those moments, everyone's often so focused on the macro that people forget you're actually buying into individual companies. Mm. So if you get an opportunity at a discount to what you think it's worth and it's a great business, then make sure you get involved.
2: Mm. Well, it's obviously been working since you launched OzCap in 2012. You've returned 15% per annum compared to 9% for the ASX All Lords. How, how do you think about portfolio management? Like, are you super concentrated? Uh, how many stocks in the portfolio? Um, just for those sitting at home, how do you think about, yeah, approaching that?
1: We're currently running 35 um, stocks in the portfolio. It's reasonably concentrated, um, and there's a few reasons for this. Uh, we would rather have a greater exposure in our highest conviction ideas. And you don't have many very high conviction ideas at any point in time. Mm. To the extent that we've entered into a, um, into a position um, that we think is a great company at a very attractive valuation and our thesis is playing out, then obviously that stock is becoming a bigger proportion of the portfolio. We try very hard to the extent that the investment thesis is still intact and the company is doing what we expect and growing earnings and the valuation is still attractive not to play with that exposure. Right. The temptation always is you think oh it's a bigger percentage of the portfolio now so we should actively reduce. Well mm. that is uh, as the phrase goes cutting your flowers to water the weeds, mm. right? You want the stocks that are the great investments to become bigger percentages of your portfolio. They often tend to be the ones that continue to outperform in the future. And so you want to avoid the temptation to reduce your exposure to the companies that are doing well in your portfolio to reweight into the companies that are actually not proving themselves and not doing what you had anticipated upon entry. So while we hold typically 30 to 45 holdings, uh, at the moment, as I said, it's 35, we find that the top 20 positions make up north of 80% yeah. of the portfolio. And we may on occasion have positions that are even double-digit, uh, percentages of the overall assets that we, we have under management.
3: Yeah, nice. Now, Tim, we've mentioned a couple of stocks uh, that might ex- exhibit the characteristics you're looking for. Nick Scully, uh was one and BHP was another, but we'd love to, I guess, get specific and talk about some of the biggest holdings in your portfolio, not the stock that you're going to pitch at the conference. <laughs> um, you can tell us that offline if you want to. <laughs> uh, but to really, I guess, illustrate some of the concepts that you're talking about with your philosophy, do you want to share maybe one or two stocks uh, that really exemplify your investment philosophy?
1: Sure. Why don't I I pick two? Um, The first one you've already mentioned, let's let's start with Nick Scali because it's a good example. So at the moment, everyone's concerned um, about uh, any company that's exposed to the homewares market or the furniture market. um, And the reasons for that are obvious. We were all stuck at home because of COVID for a couple of years. And by and large, the majority of people's incomes didn't change. Their expenditures went down because they weren't having to suddenly travel to and from work. Uh, And as a result, the savings ratio went up. Combine that with the fact that we're all sitting at home every day and people decided that they would furnish their home. Mm. And the end result of that was companies like Nick Scali experienced a very significant boost in sales as people replaced a lot of of their lounges. So fast forward to today and everyone is quite concerned that on the other side of that, we've got to see a material slowdown in sales and that you'll see earnings go backwards for a period of time. And as a result, companies like Nick Scali are trading at what look like Um, exceptionally low valuations compared to their historic earnings. So at the moment, Nick is trading on 10 to 11 times their actual reported FY22 numbers. And this is often what creates opportunities to invest in really, really good companies. Because when it comes to Nick Scali, what they're doing within the company is far more important than the things that are outside of their control. So what's inside their control is more important to the future earnings of the business than what's outside their control. And that is very, very fundamental to understanding that you are investing in individual companies. So in Nick Scali's case, prior to COVID, they didn't have an online business, right? They implemented one very, very quickly. That's now growing very, very quickly and giving them all sorts of opportunities to expand their business. They recently purchased Plush, which is one of their competitors. And it looks like they got that at a very good price and the synergies that are dropping out of that acquisition are enormous. It's also meant that they now have a very, very significant store rollout in front of them. They're planning on nearly doubling their existing store network across the two brands. Uh, And that is a very, very long runway for revenue and earnings growth for that business, both in Australia and New Zealand. So, Yes, they're going to suffer temporarily from a retracement in store earnings at the store level, but the the initiatives that they have in place that's within their control in terms of growing um, the store network, uh, extracting synergies from the plush acquisition, uh, doing a lot of sensible things in relation to their online business, should more than offset the slowdown in revenue and earnings growth that you might see as a result of people spending less on the home. So... You know, we're very excited by this business because it's at a very unusual valuation for a business of this quality. And to give you an idea, I think it's the only company that we're aware of that has a ten-year return on equity north of fifty percent, wow. and they have done that uh, ungeared. So they've been net cash every year. So it makes it even more extraordinary. So that's a better, a better long-term ROE than. REA group or car sales or any other very, very high ROE business that you might think of, and they have an enormous runway of growth in front of them, and you're getting this for evaluation that from our perspective is very, very attractive.
3: You just wouldn't think wow. about that from any retailer, let alone yeah. a furniture retailer. Exactly. Uh, and, and,
1: you know, they're, they're led by Anthony Scali. He's one of the best retail managers in the country. So you are buying into a business that's, um, that's very, very capably run. Uh, the second stock I was going to give as an example is one that's more excitable to a lot of people than, than a boring <laughs> furniture company. Um, we don't think it's boring at all, but the second company I was going to talk about is Mineral Resources. And it's... It's an amalgamation of four businesses. Its base business is a mining services business. It does a lot of mining work for the likes of BHP and Rio. Uh, That's been a very, very strong growth business over the last couple of decades, uh, and we think will continue to grow very materially in the next couple of years. And in addition to that, they have a few other businesses. They've got an iron ore business, which presently is a high-cost operation. So when iron ore prices are high, they make a truckload of money. When iron ore prices are low actually the business doesn't make any money at all and at various points in time they've closed down various operations. At the moment they are... In the process of transitioning that business from being a high cost operation with relatively low tonnage to a much lower cost operation with much more significant tonnage. So they've got two projects that they will develop in the next five years. That should mean that they are a very substantial producer and that their costs per tonne produced go into the lowest quartile. So that will become a much more consistent earner um, for the business than it has uh, historically. But the really exciting aspects from our perspective are first of all the lithium business um, and and the reason lithium's uh, exciting it reminds us in many ways from uh, uh it reminds us of iron ore in the early 2000s is that we are getting to that point where ev adoption becomes mass market and when that happens you hit the steepest part of the s bend in terms of adoption and electric vehicles require lithium-ion batteries. Uh, and so lithium is obviously a key ingredient. and Australia is very dominant in lithium production. Australia produces more than 50% of the world's lithium each year. And we have some really great assets. Well, Min Resources is lucky enough to own two wonderful assets, um, being Wajina and Mount Marion. That will position them well and truly in the lowest quartile of the cost curve. They're very significant assets. They'll consolidate their position as a top five producer globally over the next five years. And they're trying to capture the whole value chain. So they're not just going to They're not just going to sell what comes out of the ground from the mines. They're going to take it all the way through to selling lithium hydroxide, which is the product that actually goes into the lithium iron batteries. Mm. And as a result, they capture the economics Mm. along that whole supply chain. You know, as we sit here today, it's difficult to see how supply will catch demand. We're currently in a supply deficit situation demand is exploding and it's very very difficult to see how supply can catch up which means that you get very strong prices for some period of time and you might remember if you think back to iron ore in the early 2000s prices needed to explode so that prospective producers that had deposits at much lower grades were incentivized to actually get those into being mm-hmm. right and we sit here today and The guys that you want to own, the companies that you want to own in that environment are the low cost operators that already have their hands on these very, very high quality products and sorry, um, these high quality mines and min resources is absolutely in um, that basket. So as we sit here today, it's probably on a mid single digit PE. with plenty of growth in front of it. Uh, And we haven't even talked about the second exciting angle to mineral resources, and that is their gas business. And they think that they have found, in the last couple of years, the largest onshore discovery of gas in Australia's history. Really? Wow. And this is a business that could be worth many billions of dollars to them. And in many of the analysts' um, valuations, it's little more than a footnote. Um, So, this is very, very um, exciting and um, a company that we think has a lot of tailwinds over the next five years.
3: I mean, there's so much we could unpack about both of those businesses, but one direction that I want to go uh, is... Both of the businesses are led by very entrepreneurial leaders. Yes. Is that is 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 that is still the founder that runs it?
1: Yeah. yeah. So Chris Ellison still runs it, and Anthony Scali.
3: How important is that for you? That like founder CEO entrepreneurial leader. Uh,
1: very important for two reasons. Um, at, at the moment, north of eighty percent of the portfolio um, uh, is founder or major shareholder led. Okay. Well- and. and We have a big focus on this for two reasons. One, they tend to take advantage of every opportunity that's in front of them. I mean, if you go back five or six years, MinRes wasn't in lithium, Mm. right? And yet, all of a sudden, it's probably the biggest part of their valuation because they took advantage of an opportunity that was in front of them, and even though it was in a different commodity to their traditional exposure of iron ore, they saw the merits in that, and they were entrepreneurial enough to take advantage of it because... Chris was thinking about the opportunity as a shareholder because he owns a substantial stake in the company, not as, oh, this is going to increase my workload, mm. right? So, you tend to t- you tend to find that they take advantage of every opportunity. You also tend to find that they're very disciplined with capital management. So, both of those companies have a very, very strong ROE focus and they won't engage in marginal um, expansions to the business. But- m- just as importantly, you also take away agency risk. And agency risk is that company management do something um, that is in their interest, but not necessarily in the interest of shareholders. Mm -hmm. So anyone that engages in empire building, Mm -hmm. undertaking projects that are marginal, but mean that they manage a larger business and can command a bigger paycheck. um, This agency problem is often the source of the majority of negative surprises that we have experienced in running Auscap over the last 10 years. So increasingly our focus is on um, owning businesses that are founder-led and that certainly represents the vast bulk of the portfolio as we sit here today.
2: Yeah, wow. Yeah, wow. Well, two fascinating pitches. Can't wait to hear what you do at uh, Sown Hearts and Minds. And speaking of, we'll touch on that. Uh, but f- before we do, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. So, Tim, um, you're presenting and pitching down at the Sign Hearts and Minds Conference in Tassie. Super pumped to hear what uh, what you bring. As we said, you're going to have to wait to find out. We'll get it offline, but that's okay. <laughs> um, why, why is participating in the Hearts and Minds Conference
1: important to you? Third year now. Um, yeah, tell us what it means. Well, it's a very special conference and it really is a a fantastic initiative. And I, I would strongly encourage anyone that can get along, go and make a holiday of it, get down to Tasmania. It's a very, very unique experience. But both the conference itself and the stock picks that come out of it at the end of the day, uh, fund a lot of medical research. And it's medical research in areas that are really important and will probably touch all of our respective lives or the lives of our loved ones at some point. The biggest problem with a lot of research is the need to constantly source funding. And so uh, what this does um, is it enables some of those institutions to have a source of regular funding. And the way they do that is not only through the, the ticket prices for the conference each year. But in the conference, you get 12 managers that pick their best investment ideas. Those investment ideas, along with some core managers that they've, that they've selected, form the investments for a listed investment company. Mm. So the hearts and minds um, listed investment company. And, uh, people can buy into that investment. And as a result, they get exposure to the best ideas from managers that are selected by a committee um, uh, that have very, very strong performance track records. So hopefully that listed investment company over time performs strongly and gives investors a return. Instead of charging a management fee, all of the investment managers provide their services, including the initial idea and ongoing management services for free. And so that allows uh, the listed investment company to donate 1.5% of the assets under management every year to charity. And as a result, um, since 2016, more than $40 million has been donated to various causes. Um, And these causes are big issues. And they're big issues that... Um, require research. You know, we're talking mental health, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, MS, other neurodegenerative diseases. They're big um, research areas that need a lot of research so that we can come up with solutions. And a lot of the research that is being undertaken will no doubt be groundbreaking in the years and decades ahead. So having a source of funding, that is recurring in nature, as it is with this listed investment company, is particularly important. So this is a very small way for investment professionals that are otherwise relatively little involved in the fields of medical research and supporting these sorts of initiatives. It's a very small way for us to get involved and support um, the work of uh, some very eminent um, uh, researchers around the country in trying to come up with solutions to problems that that society really needs. So mm. I, I think it's just a fantastic event. I would encourage you if you are attracted by uh, some of the best minds um, in the investment market speaking and telling you about their greatest ideas to get along to the conference. And not only do you get those investment managers presenting their stock pitches, but you also typically get a couple of very big names mm. presenting in a longer format um, some of their experiences. And so, you know, in recent years, we've had Charlie Munger, um, mm. Howard Marks, Ray Dalio. I mean, these guys are... Uh, uh, some of the biggest investment managers in the world. And this year, obviously, we've got Bill Browder. Now, for your listeners that don't know who he is, go and Google him because given his background with Russia, I think, you know, it's going to be a very, very fascinating interview um, that we experience this year. Yeah.
3: We should say, uh, if you don't, don't even Google him, just go on this podcast feed and listen to our interview with him because, yeah, <laughs> he's pretty phenomenal. And I think, you know, we just want to echo that... You, you know you guys donate your time and your expertise and in, in your stock pitches and it, it is um it's really it's really amazing I guess what what they're doing and some of the stories that you hear on the day about the organizations that are being helped it's it's really profound and yes. it's, uh, it's cool that Bryce and I get to play an even smaller part in it by just talking to you guys and promoting it. Uh, if you can't make it to Tasmania, go and look at the listed investment company. HM1 is the ticker because, um, yeah, it is, it's really phenomenal what you guys are doing. But Tim, back to the investment side of it all, because the pressure's on you. You've got to get up on stage in a couple of weeks and um, present. And one thing that we're always fascinated by is you don't just have to pick a good company, but you have to pick a good company that had a a catalyst in 12 months, because that's how long HM1 holds these companies for. So again, without revealing your stock pitch, uh, how do you think about that? What What are some of the potential catalysts you look for?
1: Yeah, well, there's probably three that um, jump out. Uh, And uh, the first one, obviously, is that the company is expecting some particular development that it's talked about for some time, and you anticipate that it will occur in those 12 months. But that's often not the case and very difficult to time. The the, the second is if you just have expectations that the earnings that will be delivered by that particular company are substantially above the market's expectations. And so certainly, you know, uh, in many of our highest conviction positions, we will often have a view that the market is underestimating the strength in the growth of earnings that we are forecasting to see um, over the coming years, and we might have particular confidence that that is relevant for one stock um, more than another. And then the last source is that there are often companies trading at Depressed valuations because of fears that are macroeconomic related. It's not actually got anything to do mm. with the company um, that we are um, that we that we really like. It's macro concerns that we think will abate. So we've got a good foundation for thinking that these concerns will abate over time, and as a result, the stock will re-rate.
3: And that third one feels like it's going to be a real theme this year. The the macro picture is bleak, and um, for. Fund managers that I guess have a positive outlook. Um, there will be some turnaround stories, and yes. uh, and I guess uh, so. That leads us to an article that you wrote recently. The rationale for remaining positive. Now we're almost out of time today, but we have to get your rationale because it's pretty hard to say positive sometimes. Twenty twenty two has been tough, yes. especially for some of our listeners that are newer to investing. They may not be investing anymore, so help us remain positive.
1: Okay, let's start with the big picture, and the big picture is the last <laughs> 100 years... Are, stocks always go up. <laughs> <laughs> the last 100 years, the Aussie market has delivered 11 to 12% compound, and we've gone through world wars, we've gone through pandemics, we've gone through all sorts of crises, we've gone through stock market crashes, so um, the biggest risk a lot of the time is after the market's already declined, people decide that's the point to exit, right? The market is forward-looking. Anything that you're reading about today is most likely or priced into stocks. Yes, things can deteriorate further. They always can. But um, it is a mugs game, I think, to try to predict what is happening at a macro level and use that as the basis for your investment decisions. Think of it the other way. When stocks are on sale, when they've gone down a long way, forget about what your existing portfolio is doing and back the truck up on your favourite Um, investment propositions, right? Your favourite investment ideas. If you had a simple rule of thumb that over your lifetime, every time the market was down 20%, you added to your exposure to equities, I have no doubt that you would probably outperform the indices, right? So keep it relatively simple. If the house next door is at a 50% discount, you'd be looking to extend your credit and go and buy it. Mm. Think the same way with equity markets. Um, because I think it's the right way to think about things. And unfortunately, it's the opposite to how a lot of people do interact with the with the stock market. In this particular case, um, everyone's worried about inflation. And the result of worrying about inflation is interest rates need to go up. And that has the potential to tip the economy into recession. We often spend a lot of time analysing where we are as an economy. We have no idea what's going to happen in the future. But if we start with where we are, we can often assign probabilities to various outcomes on a go-forward basis, right? So Howard Marks, in the, at the end of his most recent newsletter, which is worth reading, points this out. You should know where you are in an economic cycle, right? And the point is that we made in the newsletter is, listen, a lot of the lead indicators in relation to inflation have fallen. Right, so oil's at seventy-eight dollars as we sit here today. It peaked at one hundred and thirty dollars at the outbreak of hostilities. That's a very, very substantial decline. Right, um, lumber has declined significantly. Copper's declined considerably. Or most of the hard commodities and most of the soft commodities have pulled back quite materially from their recent highs. The shipping index, which caused a lot of inflation in the course of the last couple of years, is declining at a precipitous rate. Right, and a lot of these things you won't see in the inflation numbers until they go through the supply chain and they go from raw ingredient inputs through to the finished products. Right, So there is quite a time lag on what we see with the raw commodities coming out in the form of inflation with finished goods right? And so at the moment, we are reasonably confident that you've probably seen a peak in US inflation. Now, it may stay elevated for slightly longer than we anticipate because it's unclear exactly how that lag, how long that lag is. But ultimately, the fact that we're seeing a lot of primary goods declining in price materially at some point should mean that we see a reasonable abatement in the inflation figures. And if that happens, then obviously the pressure to raise interest rates for central banks around the world um, will ease. And probably more importantly, Than that. I actually think the biggest um, risk at the moment is that central banks push too hard too quickly, Mm -hmm. right? And I would consider that a policy mistake. We're not seeing that sort of talk out of the RBA. So the RBA said, listen, we think we're pretty close to back to neutral. We know that there's a transmission effect, i.e., delay between adjusting interest rates and its effect on the economy. So we're probably going to take it more slowly from this point forward. And I think that's very, very sensible. So I give a lot of credit to our central bank. They get get a hard time a lot of the time, but (laughs) they need it to bring rates back to a more normal level. They have done that. And I think they will take a moderate course of action on a go forward basis. So you know, that leads us to valuation and we're seeing compelling valuations. At the end of the day, don't forget that when you're investing in stocks, you're investing in individual companies. You are buying into individual companies. Our time horizon for investing in individual companies is a long time. Mm. We, In an ideal world, we'd never have to sell them, right? If they keep performing in line with their expectations. So if you are getting an attractive entry point into a company that you think is a great business, then take that and try to forget about the short-term gyrations of the market or that particular stock over the next couple of months. If you're happy with the price and the valuation on which you're purchasing the stock, then that, should be all that matters over the medium term. Love that.
2: All right, Tim, well, before we move to our final three questions, uh, just a reminder for the Equitymates community that if you would like to get your hands on one of the two tickets that we have available to the Sone Hearts and Minds Investors Conference down in Hobart, Tasmania, all you need to do is head to our forum, which is at community.equitymates.com. And on the post for this episode, tell us which stock you would pitch at the sewn Conference. We don't need a thesis, can just be one word. Could give uh, Tim and co a few ideas as well.
3: Well, I, I think I'll be stealing Nick Scarley. <laughs> true, I'm sorry, I'm a true. <laughs>
2: but I uh, would love to hear from you and your ideas. The tickets are worth $3,500 each, as we said, and hopefully you've been able to hear from Tim today the quality of uh, speakers that are going to be at that conference. And uh, actually jealous that we're not going to be able to get down there this year, Ren, but there will be hopefully next year.
3: So, final three, let's do it. Uh, So, Tim, when we were at the start of this interview, you were talking about going travelling and taking five investing books with you. So, I've been (laughs) waiting in anticipation to ask you this question all interview. Uh, The first of our final three questions, do you have any books that you consider must read?
1: Yes, and I will limit it to a few. I, I have hundreds. <laughs> um, so uh, anything by Warren Buffett, but if you're if you're reading what he has to say, Lawrence Cunningham has put together um, uh, a compilation of uh, his letters to investors in a very digestible format. So I would strongly encourage that. Philip Fisher, um, Common Stocks mm-hmm. and Uncommon Profits is a very good one. Um, the Most Important Thing by Howard Marks uh, is also outstanding and um, strangely for a value, Manager one up on Wall Street by um, <laughs> you are already uh, laughing at me, so maybe we maybe we delete that one. No, where, no, 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 keep <laughs> it. By Peter Lynch, love yeah. it,
3: love that, love, love that. I was uh, busily typing notes there. We love the idea of pulling out what makes a great company, and so forget the investment thesis today, forget the valuation it's trading at today, just purely on the fundamentals of the company, what it does, and who runs it. What's the best company you've ever come across?
1: I think Google. The fact that they were able to um, uh, uh, achieve a near monopoly in search in uh, many developed countries is an extraordinary feat. And uh, as a result, that Business just prints money. Mm. It's extraordinary. It's unbelievable.
3: Yeah. yeah. And then uh, final question, if you think back to your younger self, taking a punt on some <laughs> internet stocks back in the day, what was it? Sausage sausage, sausage software? software. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, what advice would you give to your younger self?
1: I think um, two things. I, I'd say in relation to investing, uh, be patient. and Time is on your side. Let the opportunities come to you. And then the second would be read widely, and uh, w- we have a philosophy within the firm, which is the the longer it took the person to prepare the material, the more you should focus on reading it. So if it's a if it's a newspaper article in the morning that um, you know a journalist pumped out um, with five other. Uh, articles yesterday it's got news it's got news value but in terms of helping you as an investor it's probably less useful than for instance the you know life um, recollections of a very successful investor that gets to the end of a 50-year investment career and decides to put all of their investment wisdom into Mm. a book Mm. right (laughs) and if that book has survived a period of time it's probably because the lessons are invaluable so we try to spend a, a proportionate amount of time Reading material that spent, that was, you know, took longer to prepare um, because it's um, indicative of the value that you're going to get out of it.
3: Mm. I love that, and all that makes that makes me think of is all those algorithmically generated articles <laughs> where they come <laughs> out like a hundred at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's so exactly. don't read really
2: those. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thoroughly enjoyed that interview, as I'm sure many of the EquityMates community would have as well. Cannot wait to hear what you um, put up for the Soan Hearts and Minds Investment Conference, and we'll definitely have to get you back on at some point to uh, to unpack that stock pitch. Plus, I imagine many more. So, thank Thank you so much. Thanks Bryce, thanks Ren.
4: Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equitymates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website, where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...